Welcome to Framework, the podcast designed to help financial advisors challenge the status quo, grow your firm, and not only put best practices to use, but create new best practices altogether. Here's your host, an expert on all things financial planning, Jamie Hopkins. I'm one of your two hosts, Jamie Hopkins, and I'm joined with marketing expert and wing-eating aficionado, Judd Mackerel. I like wings. Marketing's all right. Wings are pretty good. Well, just think about it. Maybe one day you can market for a wing company. Yeah. Next, like Buffalo Wild Wings, only like you don't get sick after you eat it. I feel like that's a that's a competitive advantage. That would be a pretty good business. So maybe that's the next thing uh, down the line for you. It's a fun branding opportunity, right? Yeah. I mean, most people like wings, you know? I mean, they even make, I think, some, uh, you know, non-meat-based wings now. That's a company, right? Beyond Wings. Beyond Wings. Beyond Wings, now with extra sadness. I mean, <laughs> plant-based chicken. That's sad. Yeah. Well, hopefully today's episode will not bring you extra sadness. No. I mean, when you think about all the different wings you've, you've experienced in your life, you've tried, what makes a good wing? Well, I know the one that did bring us sadness was those ones in Cleveland at the hotel. Um, yeah. Those actually were sadness wings. I think they were made in that like microwave uh, type of uh, oven that was there. Um, but yeah, no, I'm actually a, a true Buffalo wing fan from Buffalo. Uh, Duff's and Anchor Bar are kind of the two originals. I am personally a Duff fan, and I'm not sure if that's just because of the Simpsons, and I always think of uh, Duff, Duff Beer and Duff Man. So, I, But I am. I've got a Duff t-shirt, actually, so I still have that. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I love it. I love the experience there. It's uh, fantastic, and uh, so I, I always encourage people to go there if they get the opportunity. Yeah, I don't think – I think I just moved down a few rungs on the wing ladder. I have no wing t-shirts. I've never been to Buffalo, so uh, I feel like a poser at this point. Yeah, well, uh, that's okay. I mean, food is such an amazing thing um, coming from different areas. Myself being from the Philadelphia and Baltimore area, we do uh, crab cakes and uh, Philly cheesesteaks very well. Yeah, Nebraska is the home of the Runza and the Reuben, neither of which are, <laughs> are recommended. But, you know, we have steak. Uh, steak is our thing here. We do that quite well. Yeah. I mean, food really does, you know, it, it's such a passion item. And as a kind of a, the name of the show framework, like food sets the framework for so many cultural activities and relationships. And so that's one of my favorite things about traveling and meeting people and spending time with people is just to enjoy that cultural aspect of, you know, what does the local area bring that's so different than the rest of the country or world? And the funny thing about wings is that a wing is a pretty funny cultural barometer wherever you travel. So it's something I actually enjoy doing more and more. Is as I travel, I always order the wings, especially if I'm at a local, you know, non-franchise sort of establishment. Like, I'm going to get the wings. It might not be indicative of the place I'm at at all, but it creates this weird little memory of that place that I associate. So I totally agree. It, it is like a, a relational framework, and it's uh, also a geographical framework for me. Well, I'm sure everyone uh, <laughs> didn't sign up today just to hear about your wings. So kind of what are we going to hear and who are we going to hear about uh, today? So today we uh, spend some time with Tyrone Ross Jr. We just had a great time, learned about a lot of different things that he's doing. Also, just, you know, his background is super fascinating. Today we'll talk about wirehouse survival tips, you know, things that you can, you can do to survive in that environment and thrive, what it's like to be a failed Olympian, and the truth about diversity and inclusion. 
or what that really means for the rest of our industry and how do we really seek to improve the situation that exists today. Yeah. And for those of you that don't know uh, Tyrone Ross Jr., um, follow him on Twitter at TR401. As he always says, he's the voice for the voiceless, a fantastic human being, great speaker. Check him out, listen to the show, and uh, really, really fun time uh, with the three of us here today. Tyrone, I just would love to hear about uh, your background. What got you into the financial advice industry in the first place? And it'd be great to get your background. Yeah, absolutely. As I've, you know, I've, I've kind of alluded to previously, uh, I was 26 years old when I found out what the stock market was. I had no idea about stocks, bonds, any of that. You know, grew up in an unbanked home, um, a financially illiterate home. And it wasn't until, you know, I came across a graduate professor that he mentioned, he's like, you know, you'd be great on Wall Street. And I'm like, well, what is that? Right. I had no idea what he was talking about. But, you know, the genesis of that is being a first generation high school graduate. You know, my mom got pregnant as a teenager. My dad came to this country from Guyana, couldn't really, you know, read and write that well. You know, not much more than a middle school education. And they kind of, you know, kind of put it together. I came along six years later and it just, you know, started to create for me now, looking back, the beginning of life experiences that, again, a lot of us that grow up in those environments become accustomed to, which is scarcity, which is, you know, fear of, you know, is this where I grow up? You know, I can't take you to my childhood home now because I don't have one. So all of those things kind of, it left a a mark on me that I wasn't really exposed to because, again, when you're poor, you don't really know you're poor um, until, again, and especially when you start, you know, working on Wall Street, um, the duality of coming where you come from and then having to deal with so much affluence and people with money and living, you know, differently than you. It's while you're also learning about what money is, what stocks is, what bonds are, what all these things are it creates, uh, again, a, a juxtaposition is very uncomfortable. But for me, I, you know, I was able to endure, I don't know how, to be honest, but a lot of good mentors for one. But now I try and use that experience because I realize that now there are very few people who work on Wall Street who are first generation high school graduates, but also try and shed light on some of the things that I've gone through to get here. I tell people I'm, I'm very fortunate and lucky. I'm a unicorn because there's not too many black men in this business to begin with, but especially not those who come from, you know, the bottom um, where, where I come from and where I started. So that's kind of really how it ended up. I started doing investor relations at a firm called Financial Dynamics, IRPR firm. They kind of kept me on the PR side until I figured out the buy side and sell side and all that other stuff that I didn't know anything about. Long story less long, left there, went to a a boiler room, got my seven to 63, was doing, you know, I've, I've said this before, 600, 700 dials a day dialing across the country, you know, where I learned to pitch stock. I and mean, then I started hearing about these things called wirehouses, ended up at a wirehouse, was at Merrill five years and left Merrill to go independent in 2017. Man, that's, that's awesome. And it, you know, that's kind of a, as you said, kind of an amazing background and story and, and that perseverance. And as you said, not a lot of people from the background that, that make it there, right? There's, there's so many hurdles. And 
So what is it? I know you said mentors, but what else? I mean, some of that's got to come from you, maybe even some of it from your family, right? Or what was it that you think just kept you on the drive and kept you moving in an area that, you know, you didn't necessarily have the stereotypical normal background uh, to succeed it, but you did, right? And you kept with it. So what was it that when you look back, you kind of you just noticed that maybe you didn't notice at the time, right? I think some of that's occurring, right? When we're doing something, we don't always notice what's what's keeping us there. But uh, what was it, you know, if you take that reflection? I think the main thing was life lessons from my parents. I think what I got from my dad was work ethic, right? My dad worked on the same job 40 years. Again, not not being able to read and write um, and, and then eventually not being able to read and write well. So he was a wonderful example of work ethic. My mother extilled gratitude. She extended appreciation because that's all they had to give us. <laughs> so she was like, say thank you, be appreciative, you know, work hard. And I think those are the things that, that I took with me that allowed me to, to soak up a lot and to ask questions and just to be a hard worker. Like I, I literally... When I sat in my interview with Merrill Lynch, I, you know, they gave you that list to fill out the people that have $250,000. I didn't have anyone on the list. And then I failed the personality assessment and the <laughs> complex managers, <laughs> the complex directors looking at me and he's like, give me a reason to hire you. He's like, you don't, you're not connected to money. You failed the personality test. He was like, you know, your resume is okay. Like, it was really, you know, he's like, to be honest with you, I just, I, don't, I forget what, what school he said, Columbia, Yale, whatever. The person before you I interviewed was from whatever. And I looked at him, I said, look, if you give me this job, I'll outwork everybody you hired yesterday, everybody you're going to hire tomorrow. And he looked at me and it was like, he just gave me this blank stare and I didn't say a word. I was just quiet. And he was like, all right. He was like, this is the branch. You'll be going to this branch. He's like, I'll talk to the branch manager. If he gives me the okay, you'll hear back from us. And, you know, went for that interview and got the job. And I made good on that promise. Like I literally locked myself in a room and I'm like, I'm going to cold call until my fingers bleed. And I did really well in the training program. But one of the things that I did realize now one of the things that I talk to people about, because they always people who have done well in their life and they want to try and create this, you know, they want to create the path for their children. And I tell them you can't, right? I was born with a PhD, poor, hungry, and driven. So you're never going to outwork me. You don't have a chance because you've had it too good. But when you've been a kid and the <laughs> lights have been off, and you've been evicted, and you don't know when the next time you're going to eat again or whatever the case may be, you can't compete against those kind of people because they'll come in early on a Saturday. They'll try like hell to get into the office on a Sunday. They'll stay late on Friday. Like the hard work is just part of, it's the tuition, right? It's, it just comes with the territory because when your life has been hard, Wall Street is not difficult, right? The difficult part is being yourself, not the actual work that it requires to be successful. So when you have a PhD of life and you're driven because you you know what it's like to have nothing, that's a very hard person to compete against. And I just kind of looked at it that way. And I looked at all of the people who were in the training program with me who had Gucci shoes on and driving BMWs and doing all that other stuff. And I took it personally. And I'm like, 
I am literally going to stay here until they throw me out. Part of being a great fiduciary is helping your clients understand their full financial picture, and it should be no different for your life. Do you know what your business is worth? Get your firm valuation today with our free valuation calculator. Whether you're looking to share equity with your team, buy another firm, prepare for an exit, or just simply want to see the market value of your business, visit carsongroup.com valuation to get started. The first step to setting up the framework of your business is to have the right blueprint. But knowing what goes into that blueprint is half of the battle. We put together a free resource that you can use to set your firm down the right path. To get your free blueprinting guide, go to carsongroupcoaching.com. While you're there, be sure to check out all of our executive business coaches, how we help advisors like you, and read up on our framework podcast show notes and other insights. Just head on over to carsongroupcoaching.com to get your free blueprinting guide today. When I hear you talk about like the the boiler room sort of, you know, cold calling atmosphere, I feel like in my experiences of doing that kind of work, you usually learn pretty rapidly and you kind of find your own hacks, right? And in that whole process, what are like, what's one cold caller secret that you learned when you were doing that one way that you were able to, you know, have success, you know, making six or 700 calls a day, you know, getting to the next step in one of those calls. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a weirdo because I love cold calling and I miss it. Actually, (laughs) I don't do it anymore. But again, I think it was, if I had to lean on anything, I think it was my background as an athlete because it was uber competitive, right? It was about who can make the most calls, who could close the most people, who could get the most leads. So I think being an athlete definitely helped that. I think the other thing, once I got good at it, I was unafraid to pitch the room, so to speak, right? Stand up, create emotion, walk around, literally create a movie as I was cold calling. I did that, you know, every step along the way. I remember, you know, I was cold calling at, I think it was Merrill, and I'm in the office there and I'm walking around and I'm pitching a cold call and one of the the, uh, wholesalers walks in and she's like, oh my God, I haven't heard that pitch said like that since I was at Lehman. And she was like, you know, it's beautiful to hear it. And you, you know, like you're literally creating all this emotion through the whole room. So I think once I got over that fear of everyone hearing my pitch, once I got over the fear of, of being very demonstrative and creating emotion and memorizing my pitch and doing all that, that was the big differentiator. And I was just, again, I was super competitive. I still am. I'm just very, very competitive. Some people thrive in that environment. Some don't. You know, I'm starting to see some conversation on Twitter or people about the wirehouse environment or whatever. That part of it, I actually enjoyed. The racism and the bigotry is terrible, but the actual competitive part of a wirehouse, if you're built for it, it actually will bring out the best in people who are super competitive and like that, you know, that internal drive to compete. And that was really it. So for me, it was just about making sure that I was the best one to open my mouth. I practiced my pitch on the weekends. You know, I made sure I memorized it. I would try and make people laugh at the beginning of the call. And I would try and tell stories and paint pictures when I cold called. But then you realize at the end of it, you don't really have to talk about anything, right? People just 
They start to like your personality over the phone. And it's a really good way to be successful when you endeavor to cold call up. I mean, one of the things you brought up there too is just being an athlete. And uh, I guess now I actually just call myself a former athlete. I, <laughs> I, just, I don't actually think of myself as an athlete anymore because like I'll jump over a curb and then my knee hurts now. So, uh, <laughs> but that was always like, I actually always used to pitch that like for job interviews, like that was always one of my things, right? Which was, they oh, yeah. were like, and I would tell them like stories like, look, I, you know, grew up swimming under two different Olympic head coaches. Like we swam seven days a week. We were in the pool at 6am. We were at the pool after. And it's that same type of drive and just that ability, you know, that you're going to follow through in a process and kind of outwork people. I'm not the most talented athlete out there in the world. And so tell me a little bit about that. I mean, people love hearing those stories. Do you have a favorite athletic moment in your life when you think back about it and you're just like, man, that was, that was the best moment. <laughs> great, great question. I've never been asked that. That's a really good question. So again, my athletic pursuits have, again, it's driven me. It's gotten me to where I am. Again, I only went to college and even knew what college was, was because I had a, a gift to run and I got a full scholarship to Georgia Tech that I quickly lost because I got kicked out um, and finished up at Seton Hall. But Oh man, I don't know. I mean, I, I probably, I probably would have to say Penn Relays, which was my senior year, because we were a really small school at that time. We probably had 400 students. I mean, there were 90 kids in my graduated class, and then you have this little small school that is literally running in front of 50,000 people, running in some of the biggest and largest high schools in America. And we were, you know, I don't know how many, there are thousands of high schools to try and make the final eight at that meet. And we were in it. It was amazing. Be 17 years old, running in front of 50,000 screaming people. And you're from this little high school running against some of the biggest, most talented schools in the country. Um, that was super impressive. I mean, what's really cool is, you know, one of the kids that was on the team at that time, my, my little brother, Steve Deppy, he's actually, he has his own RIA out in San Diego now, which is really cool. We talk about that often. That was a really cool moment. But as far as, with, you know, for me, my whole thing was I introduced myself as a three-time failed Olympian because that was my dream, right? Unfortunately, now it's never going to come true. And it almost drove me to the point of suicide. I, I almost killed myself over the fact that I wasn't going to become an Olympian. And that journey of 2004, 2008, and 2012, ultimately, you know, tearing my groin a couple of weeks before the Olympic trials, broke me. It broke me as a man. It broke me as an athlete. Um, it broke me as a son. broke me as a friend. And again, I just woke up one morning. And I'm like, if this is what it is, I'm done with it all. And then now... I will never be an Olympian in terms of having the actual accolade and the medal, but I'm an Olympian based on the journey and what it's made me. It's humbled me. It's made me stronger. It's made me wiser. It's made me more aware of feelings and emotions and the things that I say to children who I advocate for and fight for, because the truth is you can't be anything that you want to be. That is a lie. We have to stop telling kids. And the only thing that hard work guarantees you is that you're going to be tired. Hard work doesn't guarantee you anything. It is a character trait that you should have, but hard work doesn't guarantee you anything. So a lot of the hard life lessons that I've learned have coming forward now. And it's funny because people see all of this quote unquote success that they think that I'm having now, but it's only because that I endeavored as a 16 year old 
to say I wanted to be an Olympian. I had no idea what that meant, but that journey over the last, you know, right, 16 years and the reps that I put in, right, I have startup founders that I have as clients and I work with early stage startups. And every time I talk to them, the first thing I ask them is, what is your RFN? How high is your RFN this week? Meaning how many reps did you put in for nothing? How many things did you do that you feel like don't count? Those are the things that matter. So when I was up at 3.30 in the morning, when I was cataloging everything I ate, when I didn't take a vacation, when I cataloged all my food and I was training two, three times a day and multiple times on holidays and all this other stuff, those were reps, those were down payments for success that I'm having now. And when you work hard at something and you have a dream, it may not necessarily manifest in the way you want it to, but it will manifest somehow. But now as these things start to happen for me, I realize, oh, okay, those early morning hill sprints, right? Those 400 meter sprints, right? Those hard weight room sessions, you know, giving up eating, you know, my mother's pie and all that other stuff. That was the down payment on the success that I'm having now. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I don't think of myself as a failed Olympian yet, but maybe that's a great way to put it. I swam on a team where that was really the goal. Like everyone was there to go to the Olympics. And to be honest, I never believed in myself during that time. Like I missed an opportunity to probably be better because I didn't have that belief. I just, you know, I always thought like I wasn't good enough. And the reality is I didn't know what it took yet. Like it took me too long. Like I was probably 20 or 21 before I really learned how to put all of that together. And at that point, when I really put it all together, I literally tore my shoulder in two spots that year and uh, was okay, but I just wasn't going to be back to where I could have been. But all of that has been very helpful for me afterwards, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's kind of just driven, you know, me to to realize, you know, if you want to be really good at something, right, those Sunday mornings, right, they matter. The way you prepare, what you do the day before something, you do travel, I do travel. And like when I do like speaking events, like I have a bunch of stuff that like I do the day before, like where, you know, I'm not going to eat raw, you know, sushi and fish and oysters the day before, because I don't need to put that bad mojo on myself before a speaking thing. I'm not going <laughs> to drink the day before I go speaking. I don't want to be feeling down the next day. You want to bring that energy and like those little things all mm-hmm. matter. And, it, and that's what you said. That's putting in the work that like nobody's really seeing but is giving yep. you that framework or process to kind of be better than uh, you're going to be if you don't do it. 100%. What was your, what was your favorite event that you did? Track 400 meters far and away. Wasn't the easiest event to embrace, but once I did, yeah, uh, 400 meters is, again, it's, it's the greatest microcosm for life, if you ask me, because everyone would be willing to run 300 meters, but that last 100 meters is going to separate the, the haves from the have-nots you just realize like I got to run through this last hundred and that's where I won a lot of my races. Cause I knew that people were literally going to see, Oh, okay. I got a hundred to go and they weren't going to buy in. And that's the one thing I tell my mentees or whatever, you're going to be successful in life. You got to find where your pleasure meets people's pain. And that's just what it was for me. I'm like, when people start to complain or cower or I'm sore or I'm tired or this, that, whatever is where I'm like, all right, let's dig in. Now I'm ready to go. Um, and somebody, somebody's going to have to deal with me. So I'm glad for that because I bring that to life. You know, it, it instilled in me a mental strength that I probably wouldn't have had otherwise. Nice. Do you still sprint today? I do. Uh, I still compete. Unfortunately, my schedule is such now that I don't know when I'm going to be able to compete this year. 
but I am in really good shape. It's just a matter of, well, I think I'm in good shape. The track will always humble you until you toe the line and then see where you are. <laughs> you don't really know what kind of quote unquote shape you're in, but yeah, I do still compete. Nice. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, Daryl Green, he, you know, he was one of the fastest guys in the NFL for a long time. And I remember, yeah, he ran the same hill and he used to talk about it, right? Like, I keep getting that older, but that hill stays the same. <laughs> 100%. 100%. It never changes. It never changes. Absolutely. So, I guess, you know, another thing. So, that's a lot about some of the drive you have. And tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. What is it that's yeah. exciting you? What are you out there doing? What are you building? You know, I know you're working on a couple different yeah. things. Yeah, so it's, a lot, it's a lot going on. I mean, the main thing, what, what I'm excited about is that I finally found my purpose in life. And everything I do now has to be tied to two things, my passion and my purpose. And I'm, I'm happy now that, you know, everything that I'm doing aligns well with that. And I've stopped living for my resume. I don't really care about any of these industry accolades or any of that crap. It's nice because I know that's what people want to measure your success by. Um, and that's what gives you quote unquote credibility. But for me, it's just a larger microphone to scream into the people that I'm, that I'm fighting for. So legacy first resume afterwards, like everything now is tied to my legacy. So what I am excited about is, you know, advocating for change and doing it the right way. And, you know, that's the unbanked, that's the underbanked, those it's, it's marginalized folks in our business. And it's more importantly, black boys, right? The almost 90% of third grade black boys in this country that cannot read. That's a crisis, right? Financial literacy I'm passionate about, right? That's another thing is a crisis in our country for all people. So I'm passionate about that. But I realized being in this business, this is year 14, is that I realized that the industry only responds to things certain ways. So I had to go about doing things differently. So I just started an endowment in my name at Georgia Tech. I started telling conference organizers that I'm not going to come to your conferences if you don't agree to pour into the community, you know, contribute to my endowment and make sure it's, it's impactful. I'm okay with you checking the box because you needed a black guy. And I'm okay with that because that's what you need to do. But now that you use me, I'd like to use you to bring light to some things while we're here. So for me, everything for me is about advocating for people in need. And yeah, there are some cool things that I'm working on with Altruist in the podcast, which has been amazing. Uh, we have an announcement coming soon. I'm working on launching 401, which we're getting close. I'm super excited, which is a financial consulting company with one core competency, which is storytelling, working with Chris King, who was formerly of Morgan Creek, to launch a crypto RIA that is going to allow financial advisors to access Bitcoin through a passive strategy, SMA, doing the Detroit Invest in You initiative with exponential ETFs to bring financial literacy and education to the city of Detroit. And as an ambassador for Inside ETFs, to help them, you know, build out some initiatives with conferences and things like that. And also uh, partnering with uh, Keith Beverly and the folks at Moxie to try and get 20 black CFPs over the board, over the line rather, uh, in 2020 to become CFPs. So again, all purpose, all passion and things that I fully align with and all of the partners and people that I'm working with now are committed to contributing to my endowment, contributing and put it into the community and committed to making sure that they're no longer checking boxes, but being thoughtful about representation and equality, not diversity and inclusion, which has become a trope. So super excited about those things. And again, just advocating for thoughtful change, 
advocating for the, I, I have on my bio, right? Being a voice for the voiceless and making sure that, again, I have to be cognizant as someone who comes from the bottom that when I get into this business and our business, again, only responds to certain type of people from certain types of backgrounds, that those of us that do come from nothing and are fortunate enough to be successful in this business, that we don't forget where we came from and we don't forget the people who are purposely ignored by Wall Street, purposely, right? And again, that's okay, but we have to acknowledge it. And then once we acknowledge it, then we can focus on making sure that we do what we need to do to make sure that those people are helped. And that's my responsibility. Every hungry, neglected, abused, abandoned child in this country is my responsibility to make sure that they get the help that they need. And that's, you know, my main concern every day when I wake up every day. So as you think about, you know, helping this industry acknowledge the need for representation and equality versus just diversity inclusion, which, you know, sounds trite, honestly, because I feel like, you know, we do that and it's mostly... It's not very diverse at all. <laughs> uh, no, not at all. What that looks like. Yeah, um, by any means. Mm-hmm. What does that really look like if I'm a you know, white CEO running a financial services company and I understand I'm not where I should be? What does that look like from your perspective to help me really embrace representation and equality? Fantastic question. A couple of things that I always talk about is one is getting proximate. As you get proximate to people who don't come from the same environment, didn't go to the same schools and whatever. And again, this doesn't necessarily mean hiring these people. We need to stop that. It doesn't necessarily mean hiring. That's the end result. But you got to get around them to understand some of the challenges that they have to get into this business. I, I was very, very, very lucky, right, to, to be where I am. And it's very hard to break through, period, if you, if you aren't, you know, a, a white male. But it's, it's even more difficult when, you know, you, you, you lack the education and resources and so on and so forth. And more importantly, <laughs> on Wall Street. But I would just say, one, get proximate. Meaning, as you start to talk to people, again, I just sat with a black man yesterday. And we had a great conversation. Our backgrounds couldn't be even more different. He lived a charmed life. Again, and that's where we need to define diversity. What does that mean? But long story short, he still had some of the same experiences that I had. You start to talk to black women, you start to talk to Hispanics and Asians and gays and across the border, you start to realize your individual challenge and, you, and then you go back and you say, okay, well, here's how we make it more accessible to them. What does our website look like? Are we marketing them to them, right? The imagery in Wall Street is awful, right? It's, there's, the imagery is terrible. We just need more images. If we just change the images on our website and our collateral and all of the billboards that we see, then people feel like, oh, well, it's already more inclusive simply because they're changing their branding. So we got to do that. You got to get proximate. The other thing is, is doing just basic education. I'm surprised that a lot of people in our business don't know what a HBCU is, right? At a historically black college. And again, it's laughable at some extent, kind of sad in another, because if you don't go to the historically black colleges and you don't recruit, then you're missing out on a whole pool of people who could be exposed to our business. Again, don't necessarily have to hire them. Go there, go to the battle of the bands, eat the food, talk to the kids, see what's going on. And then you may say, hey, this may be somewhere we can actually put some dollars. Last thing, which I'm very proud is happening. There have been a lot of powerful. And again, I don't even want to make it about uh, white right now, white or black or whatever. But just the fact that what goes on behind the scenes is going to be more powerful than what goes on in front of it. My mother said a long time ago, the most powerful people who will make the most change will never shout about it. 
So there have been, and I won't name any names, but there have been powerful men, white men on Twitter that have DM me and said, Tyrone, we want to hire differently. Can you help us? Absolutely. One, where should I go? What should I do? Two, can you connect me to the people in your network? Three, can you follow up and make sure applicants do, you know, this, 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 and this. Let them know that you are referred, that they were referred by you, they will move to the front of the line or whatever the case may be. Here's the thing with that. Black folk, brown folk, whatever we're defining brown is now, whatever the case may be, minorities, let's just stay there, and this business are not even used to that quote-unquote hookup they don't even know how to take it. So I would say, hey, such and such has this, app, this spot open. Go let them know I sent you. And then they'll come back to me and say, well, I don't have this degree or this, that, whatever. Like, we don't even know how to accept that, right? Because we're so used to being marginalized. So until you understand all of these issues that we have, so you got to think about it. If someone is not used to getting help and then you want to help them, they're not going to be accepting of that help. They're going to go, well, why do you want to help are you exploiting me? Like, what is it for? So until we get to people and understand their circumstance, until we get close to them and, oh, this is the hurdle that you have. And, oh, you haven't even been exposed to the stock market. Or you don't even know what private equity is. or You don't know what a hedge fund is. They don't know. So of course you can't hire them. Of course the pools are small. Of course the numbers aren't there because we're not going to get them. Right? So, you know, again, I, I, there's plenty of ways to approach this, but I think as we start to you know, as CEOs of those that are hiring say, okay, hiring is the last step, right? My mentor always says, if you are a good financial advisor and you are doing robust financial planning, you will talk about investments last. You will spend all of that time answering questions they didn't think to ask. You will, you will learn about them, their families, their fears, their concerns, what it is that they want to do, whatever. Then you get to all of that. The last part is here's what we're going to do with your money. Same thing here. Hiring is the end at the beginning, it's let's just put ourselves where they are. Who do we want to hire, right? Let's represent, let, let's get representatives of who we want to hire, right? Just say who, and then go where those people are. Like they told me, oh, Tyrone, if you want to go where wealthy people are, you got to play in traffic. You got to go golf. You got to go to a cigar lounge. You got, okay, well, why don't y'all do the same thing when you want to hire more people who look like me? There's really hard, tough answers to that, but I will move on. So once you go where they are, then you understand what their unique challenge are, right? Okay, so we want, you know, we would love to have a, a, a black woman. We would love to have an, a, an Asian woman. We would go where they are, eat their food, get familiar with them, and then simply ask, hey, hey, Jamie, right, Tyrone, if you wouldn't mind exposing us to your network, right? Did, were you in a black sorority or black fraternity where you were an athlete, where you were now more people like them are connected to them. Now you get exposed to a greater group. So hiring is the end result. If you focus on that right away, you're never going to get these people, but you just got to get around them, see what their unique challenges are. Why isn't there more of them getting through the door? And then once you do that and you start to create solutions, now everyone goes back and say, oh, those guys at Carson, holy moly right? They came here, they spoke to the kids, they brought books or whatever, and they really were concerned and they endowed us and they, they started to come back. And now the kid, that kid goes, oh man, well maybe, maybe that's something that I want to be. And they start to ask questions, right? The three E's that I talk about, exposure, education, and empowerment. We like to lead with the middle E because everyone wants to justify their designations and their Wharton degrees and all that other stuff. No one cares. But when you expose people, you expose them, expose yourself, Right now you say, oh, crap, we had no idea that this is how hard it was to get these many people, right? Th this is why there aren't 
many more black CFPs. Now we know what the hurdle is. Now, as Carson, as Dynasty, as 401, as whatever, let's help them get over the hurdle. One of the things about minority communities are they're very loyal. So if you help them, then you got a fan for life. And then it starts to just funnel effect. Then you change the marketing and you change the branding and you start to make it more familiar to those groups. And then they go, oh my goodness, I really feel like I could find a home here. That's a really long-winded answer, but I'm really passionate about it because I think the industry has been going about it the wrong way on purpose to say, oh, well, we tried. We, we, we definitely tried. We, we're diverse, right? So diversity now is hiring a woman, Okay. Right. So, you know, if, if we're more representative and more equal in terms of giving everyone the opportunity and yes, the best candidate should win out. I'm not saying that, but everyone should have an equal shot at that one position that you have open. I don't care what it's for, by the way, computer, uh, an analyst, a, a CFA, financial planner, everyone should get an equal shot. You just got to do the job to give everyone an equal shot. And then you hire the best person and at least you can start to document that you did get enough people to the table to get the opportunity. But we got to stop with the quote unquote Rooney rule on Wall Street. It's just not working. So Tyrone, on, on that, how have you been engaging the, the HBCUs when it comes to, as you said, you've got a couple of initiatives you're working out there with getting right people through these CFP programs, through these financial planning programs. And actually like a decent amount of the, those colleges actually and universities have some financial planning programs. Like that's actually been a good outcome, right? Like we've actually, there's probably a higher percentage of those now with financial planning programs than probably general schools. Right. So, which I think is pretty cool, right? Like I know uh, Dr. Loving, Mm -hmm. uh, who I worked with for a while, like he was always very focused on that. He said had some positive impact there too. But how are you working Mm -hmm. with those now? Or how would you tell others to engage with them and actually help? Yeah, great question. So also, I don't want to, I want to say this. Also, a big piece of how things change what you guys are doing right now. And that's the truth. You bringing me on, obviously there's, you're going to have people on to talk about all these different topics that won't be this, right? And you making room for this is important, especially because of, let's just be honest, the weight that you guys hold of who you represent and what you do. All highly respected, um, that work for a highly respected firm. That matters when you guys say, hey, let's pivot here just a little bit to put a face that people may not be used to seeing and give that person a little bit of our time for them to say whatever it is they need to say. That matters. So please I'm super grateful. You guys need to understand the power, the ripple effect of what you're doing is magnified a thousand times once someone like myself accepts and they're given the opportunity to advocate on behalf of change. So this is truly how it happens, not backdoor meetings about, you know, hiring diversity and inclusion consultants, but I digress. So one of the things about HBCUs that I do is I have, it's mostly on LinkedIn that I do this. I kind of have an open, you know, open policy where those from those schools can reach out to me and send me their resume and just kind of help them get on the track if this is what it is that they want to do. The other thing that I'm working on with now with Quad A, which is, you know, the group for African-American advisors is making sure that we provide opportunities for those folks at those schools to come to conferences, 
to have access to financial advisors who are already successful and ultimately get them through those, you know, financial planning programs and into right away mentor sponsorship opportunities with those who are CFPs already and in the business. And I think the last thing is, you know, as far as those that aren't doing that already, I would just simply look into, again, trying to get on campus there and say, hey, we would love to, if you don't have a financial planning program, come in and speak to those students. Because again, I get it. Everybody wants to go to Harvard and Yale and, and Princeton. I get it. Why wouldn't you? But that same effort should go into, all right, let's go to Florida A&M. Let's go to Tuskegee. Let's go to Howard. Let's go to Spelman. Spelman, by the way, my goodness, right? If you're looking to hire black women, if you're looking to hire women, period, and you're not at Spelman, you're not serious. You're just not. Like, that's just the truth. And again, you know, if you look at the history of how Spelman started, which again, a lot of people aren't familiar, but Rockefeller had a lot to do with that, right? It's like, these are things, just lessons that we need to learn and be aware of. And the pipeline of talent that comes out of those schools are amazing, but they're just not getting equal opportunity because large financial firms aren't pouring the resources into them to identify and or advocate and or position them, market to them for success in our business. And again, I completely understand the world would have you believe the best and brightest comes from these small cohort of schools. But if we just said, hey, right, let's, let's see if we can pluck one or two from there, then I think that's somewhere you know, a good starting point for change is people start to just slowly start to embrace, okay, well, let's just open up the applicant pool. I think that's, that's super, super helpful. And one of the questions I think I have is just more power to you in terms of what you're doing for our industry. I think helping educate this industry is just the delta between what we know and what we ought to know is, is massive. And, and you're doing a lot to help change yes. that. And uh, as you look forward into our industry, like, what do you foresee in the next five years? Like how, how do you expect firms to really get their act together? Or do you have a vision for that? Just curious. I do. Again, I've gone on record saying I believe that in not maybe five years, but I believe in 10 years time, we will be the most beloved industry in the world. 100%. I think the, the, the paradigm shift has happened. And there are so many, like yourselves, thoughtful givers who want to give. And here's the thing that we forget. People just don't know how to give. And not in the sense that they're selfish or they aren't givers or weren't taught, but they don't know how. How do I give to a student in New Orleans who we want to graduate, but when I'm used to giving to, again, endowments, I'm used to giving back to my college. I'm used to giving to uh, uh, all of these galas and well-to-do organizations. I'm comfortable with that. I write a check and it's done. But if there aren't enough people who shine the light on your New Orleans, your Detroit's, your Baltimore's, your Dade counties, right? All of these places to simply say, hey, have you thought about giving here? They don't need as much money, right? And a little bit of your time and effort here will go a long way I think we take that for granted because, again, a lot of people in our business have done well in life. They come from great homes, and that's fantastic. No one should feel sorry about that. And that's one thing that I want people to know because I get messages about this all the time. I'm a middle-aged white male who grew up with affluence. No one wants to hear from me. B.S. If I'm drowning, I do not care about the color of the life preserver. Come save me, please. I'll worry about your background later but I'm drowning. 
So there may be a local school that, you know, may need computers. The, the kids may need uh, passes to get to and fro. There's hungry children. You can't take a little piece of your insurance fees and donate it to that organization or whatever fees. Of course. Not only does that look good on you, but if you start to broadcast that to your clients, my clients are overjoyed to take part in everything that I'm doing. And again, 99% of them didn't grow up like me. And they're like, Tyrone, what you're doing is fantastic. I had no idea what layaway was. I had no idea that kids struggle with student lunch debt. I had no idea that children couldn't graduate because they owed library fees of books that they didn't return. I had no idea that children go hungry for days, right? I had no idea that it, as a child, at one point you were going to the bathroom in plastic bags because there was no running water. Like this matters. So until there are more people who can speak to these conditions, I don't expect uh, Jeff Bezos or Howard Marks or whatever. I don't expect them to know. I don't expect anyone to know, but we got to shine a light on that. But when you do, what you're starting to see from me advocating for this is people go, oh, crap, I had no idea. So we take for granted that people know how to give. They don't. And then also thoughtful giving is a whole nother realm where I'm going to be thoughtful and have direct intent about where these dollars go right? Directly into the school, directly into this program, directly into supporting the people that, oh, by the way, that are working their behind off to make sure that my children who I put in a private school that I'm paying $50,000 a year for, that they don't run into that kid on the street and they beat my child, they rob my child, they break into my home, whatever the case, they carjack my kid or whatever. This is a whole community effort. And I was a probation officer before I started working on Wall Street. And I had 40 of the most dangerous kids you will ever want to be around in your life. And I knew, I said, I got to keep these monsters away from my niece, <laughs> right? From my mom and dad. Because if I don't pour into them, they're going to rob, they're going to steal, they're going to shoot. They could, they could kill me, right? So it's very important that we understand, yes, and, and I said this at Inside ETFs, you can prepare the child for the path. You can't prepare the path for the child. So we got to make sure that, yes, you can prepare your children for a very nice, cushy life, but they still got to go walk out into the world. And then we also got to make sure that the children that are forgotten, the children that are, again, abandoned, abused, neglected, hungry, not everybody, by the way, that's my responsibility. But all I'm saying for on Twitter is, listen, I know you guys aren't going to go where I go, but if you could support me to support them, we're all helped. Right. Because those are kids that I keep out the system. Those are kids that I keep out the street. Those are kids I keep away from your kids. Right. So I think, again, we, we take for granted that people know how to give. We take for granted that people know the plight of the working poor. Fifty million in this country that we know the plight of people who are unbanked, like my parents, who still don't know how to use an app. We take for granted that people could fill out a form and don't know what a maiden name is. What is a maiden name? right? We take for granted that people don't even understand what it means to walk into a bank and fill out a form to get their money. So there's so many things that we take for granted in this business, just in general, because we live privileged lives with multiple accounts and brokerage accounts, and we arguing about PE ratios and this, that, whatever on Twitter and valuations and this growth versus value and all these other things. And there are people who simply saying, I woke up with $20 on Monday. I have three mouths to feed. I have to make it to Wednesday the rent is due on Friday and I don't get paid until the following. What do I do? So for me, I just want to make sure that I bring light to it, that people start to understand. And then again, no one feels bad for their lot in life. 
I have two nephews that I want to go to the best schools. They should have the best of everything, but they're also going to understand the struggle, the sacrifice that I went through, their grandparents went through, their great-grandparents went through for them to be able to do the things that they do. Privilege is only a problem when you don't acknowledge it, right? And to be honest, and then I say this to everyone who reaches out to me privately, is that if you are successful, you have a name, you have a lot of money, you have more power than me because if you have money, money means a lot. Money does buy happiness. <laughs> money can put you in places where you can't be without it. So if you wouldn't mind lending me a pittance, which is to you, right? It's a pittance. And just help me in, in my efforts. It will go a long way in making sure that one, we change the course of children in America. Two, it makes our industry look great because there's a reason people don't like Wall Street. And they don't, especially don't like financial advisors because they feel that we have something to sell. Now, imagine if we turn around and we show people all we have is to give. And yes, you may not want these people as clients, but you say, hey, you know what? No kids should be in a home with no lights, no gas, right? And the other thing is what will start to happen is as we start to give effectively, as we start to push into new realms and we are comfortable sharing that with our family with our, our, our fraternities and our schools and our clients, then what people will start to realize at Wall Street is, oh my God, you know, there's purpose behind what we're doing. Our clients love it. My wife loves it. Oh, I found out that I have a family member who's struggling with MS, or I found out that there's a coworker who never wanted to tell me that he was adopted, or I found out that I do have a coworker that's struggling with a heroin addiction only because we went to this home and then, or this homeless shelter and he was drawn to someone who's you know, who had to make a decision between making the left and going to see the dope dealer or making the right to going to get food for their kids. There's so many amongst us, amongst us, not even in the street, amongst us who come from some horrible background, right? And don't want to say anything because Wall Street would have you believe that you got to fit in this nice tiny box. And if you don't act, look, talk, walk, act this way, you're not one of us. But there are so many of us, independent, mind you, of where they grew up, what their background is, we all bring some type of pain, disappointment, failure, lack to this business. But if we were just able to open up ourselves and give to the areas that we care about, it doesn't have to be unbanked, underserved black boys. That's my cause. That may not be yours. It may be blindness. It may be autism. It may be multiple sclerosis. It could be cystic. I don't care, but let's just give more. And then if we start focused on giving and the last point on this is that what people will realize, the more you give, the more you get. And your AUM will be off the charts. All the things that you care about will be off the charts. And by the way, I will end on this note. I'm a believer that AUM is going to die a slow death. But it will be replaced with another AUM, which is are you merciful? Are you a merciful advisor? Are you a merciful business owner? Are you a merciful husband, wife, brother, father, sister? If you're merciful, if you have mercy for people and the situation is not like yours, our business will grow exponentially, not only in terms of what everyone cares about, which is dollars, but in terms of care, in terms of healing. And then we will be the industry that will single-handedly look back on 20 years from now and go, my God, look how Wall Street turned the corner and changed the world. Not only America, but change the world because those people touch the one thing that everyone needs, money. Now, if we put purpose behind money, there is not a force 
not a force, not a wall, not a president, not a, not a mandate. FINRA, SEC, no one can change purpose, passion, and combine that with money that everyone needs. You put those things together, there is not a wave that can overcome that. So I'm super excited for that. And again, I, I do think what I'm fighting for and, and what, what I'm starting to see it, to people embrace it, conferences embrace it, you know, all of the organizations that are, that are reaching out to me and say, hey, Tyrone, we love to do this, embrace it. We're going to look back and say, wow, look at that shift of how Wall Street turned a corner and it is the most beloved industry in, in America. That's awesome. That's awesome. So if I'm an advisor today and I listen to this podcast and I get, I get inspired, which is, you know, what you just said is super inspirational to me. How practically can I help you? Like, what are the things that I could be doing through myself personally or through my business or through the community of advisors I'm in to really, to really help you with this, with this cause? Love it. Um, the main thing is one locally, find out what you can do locally that is right next to you. Again, whether it's a group home, uh, after school program, whatever the case may be, um, and simply see what is close to you to be able to do and help. That's probably more than anything. The stories that I get from advisors who literally just decided, you know what, sent my kids to this school, but I want to try and help the kids at the other school. Super important. Also, things like this, advocating the message, right? Uh, the good folks at Trillions, Eric Balchunas, uh, Joel Weber, those guys, again, brought me on their podcast, totally took a left turn to talk about this. And it's happening a lot. So again, I'm grateful to you guys. Again, using if you have a podcast, if you have a blog, right? Just use it for something different. And I think the feedback that you're going to get is going to be overpowering, not only you, but everyone. When people go, oh my God, right? You care about this? It's something you care about. Oh, by the way, right? So that's the second thing. And I think the last thing is reach out to me and I let everyone notice. I will go anywhere. I will do anything. I will never say no. Never say no. If I exhaust myself and I die doing this, I'm okay. And I truly mean that because it means that much to me. And I will go anywhere. I will go where you don't want to go. If there's a school or whatever, you don't want to go and you want me to come, I'll do it with you. If you want me to come to your conference, I'll go. You want me to be on your podcast, I'll do it. You want a quote, I'll give you a quote. Whatever it is, I will say yes, because I am completely committed to this. Money doesn't need to be involved. None of that doesn't matter. This is my passion. This is my purpose. This is my commitment to the kids of all across this country that deserve better. So it starts and ends with me. And I don't want anyone not to reach out or ask for ideas or want to partner for me because I'm going to turn around and be like, well, you know, it's $50,000 or whatever. No, there's enough of that. We're all going to be okay. We'll make our money. But we got to make sure at some point that it's just thoughtful givers locking arms and doing what's needed. So if anyone feels like I can help, um, if there's anything I can do, I'd be more than, you know, and a few advisors have already have flown me to their hometowns, to the other side of town that they wouldn't want to go. And I've gone with them and it's been life changing stuff. And I'm committed to doing that as long as people are willing to do it and willing to reach out. Um, and don't be afraid. And last thing, just it doesn't matter what your background is, how tall, how short, how white, how black, how rich, how poor. It does not matter. We got to get away from that. It does not matter. The reason why I say that is poor has no color. It's a condition, right? Pain has no color. It's a condition, right? A, a, a disease, famine, all these things. It's not a color. We all go through it. All people go through it. Mental illness, all of these things, depression. That's not a color on any of those things. Everyone suffers in some capacity. We have a responsibility to humanity, 
Let's get away from party, color, creed, denomination, AUM, status. Let's just focus on humanity. If we do that, we'll all be better off. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, really appreciate having your time uh, to be part of the show today. And how can people find you on Twitter or wherever else you might be? What can advisors or anyone listening do to just follow along with you? Yeah, um, the best place where I do a lot of my ranting and posting is on Twitter, at TR401. My website is tyroneross.io, where it has, again, links to everything there, my bio and, and other things. And that's really it. That's probably the two best places. Um, and, and you'll see links there, again, to all of the other things that I'm doing, the podcast, the four, you know, 401, my LinkedIn, all of those things are there, but the website and on Twitter. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, I follow you on Twitter. You, we will, people will get to see a little bit of your speed on there too from time to time, right? So. <laughs> yeah, every, every once in a while, they'll get exposed to that. <laughs> every yeah. once in a while. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, thanks for coming on the show here as really one of our first guests on Framework, technically the first one that we've actually recorded. So pretty exciting to have you on here. Yeah, no, it means a lot to me. And honestly, this means a lot to me. Um, I'm completely honored and humbled for you gentlemen. Truly appreciative. Super grateful again. And and thank you for the time. And, um, you know, hopefully there's a message that, that resonates with the folks. So, Judd, I had so much fun talking to Tyrone there. I mean, it's just his background, his drive, the impact that he's having today. And, you know, as we try to take that time to reflect on this, right, that's always important. And kind of what did I learn today? And hopefully I always learned something. But I think one of the things is, you know, how are we going to build that firm of the future, the firm that we want, right, your practice that you want to build, you know, how to recruit the right talent. And that was really what I just had kind of like that, wow, that's, you know, he's hitting so many of the right pieces with it. And, you know, when you're trying to engage HBCUs or wherever, whoever it is that you want to recruit, wherever firm you want to build, right, that like, it's got to be this mix of what you want to do, then giving back to those places. So actually getting involved with the type of person or the type of university or the type of organization you want to engage, you've got to get involved with them, right? You can't just, you know, think that they're going to show up, you're going to put a posting out there, and you're going to have the right firm. I think the big theme too, is that, you know, a lot of times we've dipped our toe in the water of, of change in the diversity inclusion topic, I think was really enlightening, you know, like from his perspective, where we're at, and I'd agree, you know, representation and equality is really a better way to think about it. And we have to be proactive with how we approach it. And we have to challenge our own status quo, our own comfort, and really think about that. I also thought the, the way that he talked about what the future of a success looks like, the definition of success in the future of our, our industry might not necessarily be a monetary thing. Obviously, the headlines sell the monetary value of these firms yeah. that we manage. That sells, right? That gets published all the time. What I always think about is like open-handedness, like being open-handed and giving with one hand. It actually allows you to have that other hand to, or have the same hand to just receive too. And I think that hopefully the future for our businesses is really in giving a ton, uh, serving our clients well, serving our communities well, helping inspire clients and community to serve others well. But in turn, I think that will help us grow. And it might be just that we really appreciate the impact of our work more because it's now a lot more meaningful. It's not just an AUM number or something like that or a P&L statement. It's, it really is like an impact statement. 
that we're making in our community. So it was super inspiring. I really thank you guys for listening. Please uh, make sure to check him out on Twitter and we'll link up all the different things that were mentioned here as much as we can and really appreciate you guys listening. Thanks so much for listening to Framework. We enjoy putting these shows together and we love hearing your feedback. So please send me an email at jhopkins at carsongroup.com or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow me at Retirement Risks on Twitter. If you enjoyed the show, consider sharing it. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. You can learn more about Framework and find additional articles and downloadable resources at carsongroupcoaching.com. Thank you.